what it should do. Lord, grace us with that truth and that reality today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. When I was about uh, 15 years of age, I started working in a retail store. And I worked there for like eight years. And uh, I'll never forget the characters and the friends that I made with unlikely friends. Um, People who fought. An African-American gentleman named Fred Briggs. I still love Mr. Fred. He passed away a few years ago. Uh, Mr. Fred was about as big as that that podium right there. And um, he would sneak and eat cornbread all the time. And um, I just love Mr. Fred. He, he was in World War II and came back in this store in my hometown, hired him to work um, during holiday hours, sweeping, cleaning. And after the holiday season was over, um, he was supposed to stop working. But no one had the heart to tell Mr. Fred that he no longer had a job. And so he has worked there since he got back from World War II. But there was another lady who also worked, my sister worked there as well, um, and um, her name was Katie B. And Katie B was about as skinny as that as well. She was a sweet, 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 sweet lady. Um, What was the interesting thing about Katie B is that she would often fall asleep because we didn't have very many customers in Franklin, Kentucky, and so we got really bored. Um, We were selling really expensive clothes of which people didn't come to our store to buy them. And so it was just really boring. So you really got to talk to people and really know your clients, your customers, but also each other. And Katie B would often be found propped up around a circular, remember circular racks in stores? As a kid, I would hide inside of them while my mom would shop and then try to jump out and spook her. But Katie B would often be found asleep, standing up, propped up against one of those round racks. Typically, when she was awake, she'd be walking around with a handful of Cheerios that she would occasionally throw into her mouth when nobody was looking. I remember seeing Katie B. every time during her lunch break, she would go back to this very back, back room, and it always smelled of like home cooking. And it was this small little room, and she sat there every day, probably every day since she's worked there, eating leftovers from the night before that she refused to warm up in a microwave. She would use like a little little hot oven thing. And um, so it always smelled like roast beef and gravy, and she would have homemade cornbread every day. I'll never forget those smells. But the other thing that I'll never forget about Katie B was during her lunch break, she always sat in the same seat eating that food, reading her Bible every day. But Katie B also had a favorite verse. Katie B had a favorite verse that she would read or see, she would quote at the most inopportune times, at the most random moments, and it was Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. But of course, she read it from Jesus' Bible, the King James Version, and it would say this. She would say this, well, Aaron, because they couldn't remember my name was Eric, even after eight years of working there. Aaron, you know that the Bible says, mm, that's what it says, the Bible says, judge not. Least ye be judged. And that's exactly the way she said it. Judged. Don't be judging people. The Bible says don't judge. If you judge them, you're going to be judged. Okay? 
And that just, even to this day, as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I could not help but think of Katie B. Nolan and how she loved to quote, judge not, lest ye be judged. See, there was a season where you could throw out a term like John 3.16. And, and maybe you weren't even a Christian, but you were a wrestling fan. And you would see it in sports auditoriums all over the place, a poster that would say John 3.16. And a lot of people, even if they're non-Christians, would know that passage of, for God so loved the world, right? That whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the most common quoted verse. Brothers and sisters, I would contend to you that that has lost its position in being the most quoted verse. I would say in our culture today, the most common verse used by Christians and by non-Christians is some form of Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 where it says, judge not that you be not judged. We use it all the time. I mean, how many times have you lately seen maybe t-shirts um, that say, don't judge? Or tattoos, really bad tattoos that say, only God can judge me. And it'll have a cross on it, right? Or in rap songs. These type of words, don't judge me. You can't judge. Or I'm not, I'm not you know, we'll say jokingly, um, when we see people doing something that may be possibly questioned, before you do it, you'll say something like, I'm about to do this, but don't judge me, right? Like, you woke up and went to town hoping nobody would see you in your baseball cap and your, your pajamas that you wore to bed, right? And then you run into somebody and you say first thing, hey, I thought I would sneak in here and sneak out. Don't judge me the way that I look. I forgot to brush my teeth this morning. Don't judge me, all right? I'm about to eat this Skittle I just dropped on the floor. Don't judge me. Taste the rainbow, right? <laughs> um, you'll say things like, my house is dirty and somebody shows up. Hey, I'm sorry, we're doing this and this and this at our house right now. It's dirty. Don't, don't judge me, right? We use some form of this terminology all of the time, especially non-Christians who love to quote the Bible all of a sudden especially non-Christians who love to quote the Bible at Christians. And they will often use this term, do not judge. The Bible says don't judge you. All right? You can't judge people. That's what it says. That's what your book says. Do not judge. And it's become interesting over the past several years as our culture has been teetering on the ledge of uncertainty, uncertainty um, how many times this passage is quoted by people trying to justify their sin or the sins of others. Pastor Mark Dever of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. Um, says that this verse is often used as a shield for sin. That means that it's a barrier to allow people to continue into sin without boundaries and accountability. It allows me to do that. We live in a culture where they believe that there's no such things as an absolute truth, that there's no standard of living, and, and where love is best illustrated through tolerance of anything and everything. 
We're seeing that rampantly in our culture, aren't we, of whether or not you can use the bathroom. I read an article yesterday that somebody had posted, a friend of mine, where up in Alaska, uh, 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 a person who was born a male who believes that he is a female just won the state track competition against females. And they were wondering why parents were upset, because he identifies as a female. All right, so we are really wrestling with all of these ideas because tolerance is king. Tolerance is the new standard. There can be no longer right or wrong. No one should ever tell another person how they should live or what is right or wrong. How many times as a child, when another adult would tell you something, you say, you ain't my mama or another kid. You ain't my daddy, right? You can't tell me what to do. Don't judge me. Shouldn't we let people make their own decisions or let their conscience be their guide? Who are we to tell people what love is and that that's not love or what right is or what wrong is? I read an article a couple of weeks ago about a man who um, has a latex dog suit because he now wants to be identified as a dog. And he wears it all the time. He's married. His wife lets him do that. Because he identifies as a puppy. Right? See, our, our environment has laid its talons deep into Scripture without understanding its context. We often call this cherry-picking. All right? We like to cherry-pick verses, take them out of context, and then cast them as truth on people. How many times have you ever heard people talk about, you know, I'm not here to judge. Aren't we all sinners? Sin is sin is sin is sin. So if I'm a sinner and you're a sinner, then, you know, who are we to say, uh, especially on social media sites, whenever we were dealing with the, the homosexual ideas and all those sorts of things that were taking place, you would hear Christians and non-Christians quoting Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. I am not here to judge. In the South, we like to say that a lot. Now, I'm not here to judge, dot, 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 and then we spend the next few moments judging something, don't we? But since we said, bless their heart, or I'm not here to judge... It's okay for us to say that. It's a great thing about living in the South, I guess. But what does this passage actually mean? Is Jesus against any and all judgment? Does this passage grant us freedom to live morally however we would please? Does this passage grant us life without accountability? Is this passage um, that we should quote? And if we should, how often should we use it? This is part of my aim today. Um, and preaching here this morning is to helpfully answer these questions. One of the desires here at Mission is for our heartbeat is for, to really teach you to word and to teach you how to self-feed and to teach you the importance of not only in our preaching, but also when, when you are out here in the world or out here in your quiet times, that you are learning what it's actually meaning. And part of that importance of reading the Bible correctly is understanding its context and keeping that truth within its context. 
I was joking with Adam and some guys earlier about another passage that is often misquoted, and it's that I can do all things through Christ that who gives me strength. People use that for all sorts of things. MMA fighters, they'll quote it before they go and fight somebody. I can go beat up this guy because Jesus has given me strength. I can do all things through Christ, and yet that is not what that passage is about. Paul is in jail. He's saying, I can suffer for the cause of Christ, even to the point of being put in jail, imprisonment, in house arrest. I can die. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. All things, though, has a context. And so does Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. For us to be a healthy church, we've got to understand the context, 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 context. And you can just a lot of things justify a lot of things in our world and also in the scripture when you cherry pick out verses and cause whole movements behind them. As we've learned, what? From the Sermon on the Mount, um, that Jesus is really painting a picture of a countercultural city, a countercultural environment, a countercultural people within a, a people. And so he begins to expound on those things. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he tells his followers that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or they would never enter the kingdom of God. And so from there, Jesus has given us illustration after illustration about how that they thought the cream of the crop, how that these Pharisees, who seemed to be doing everything right, were actually getting it all wrong. And so Jesus is painting in this contrasting picture, saying to his disciples, do not be like these people. See, their belief was that they could externally Seek and achieve the approval of God without heart change. And this was deceptive and countercultural to the gospel of Christ. Jesus, as we have talked about through this series, has revealed over and over and over. Is there obedience for us as a Christian? Yes. Is there fruit? Yes. However, Jesus is out of the heart motive that produces that fruit. See, you can do religious things. You can do biblical things. You can do Christian things as far as in a moralistically choosing righting wrong and doing those sorts of things outside of Jesus, and yet your motivation of your heart be poor, be wretched, be hellish. And so Jesus is ultimately saying, I'm after your heart. I'm not just after behavior modification. I'm not just after the fact that you can do what is right, that you can do what is wrong. But I'm after the motivation of why are you doing these things? And I want your heart's affections and desires for those to lead you to righteous and obedience and fellowship after me. So Jesus continues to uncover this religious deception in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1, when he says, Judge not that you be not judge. See, Jesus is, again, pointing out the differences between what he wants his people to leave and these hypocritical Pharisees who quickly are walking around and have created a, a moral and judicial form of governing everyone else's life. See, the Pharisees, they were quick to notice the sins 
of others and yet refuse to see their own sins. The standard that they were imposing on others, they were unwilling to be un, uh, accountable for. This man-made system of morality allowed them to sit on this throne and to be both the judge and the jury. Listen to what Jesus says here in verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let, let's, uh, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to make the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, I, I'm a student of preaching. I'm a student of communication. I love to watch everything from the news and different speakers and TED Talks and, and all of this. It's a, it's a craft, and I think it's a very important craft. And one of the things I love about this use of Jesus using hyperbole here is that, that Jesus, we kind of lose it in our context, but Jesus is kind of telling a preacher joke here. They, they probably would have chuckled at this illustration. Jesus, being a carpenter, um, he, he knows the difference between a particle of wood dust and this log, this idea of a beam, it's actually the term used there in the Greek has to do with a, a foundation or a, a major rafter. If you were to look at these rafters and, and if they were made of wood. And so Jesus is, is kind of making this joke here of a person that walks up to another person and he's got this huge like tree coming out of his eye. And he walks up to a person, and imagine this big limb hanging out this guy's eyeball, and yet with the other good eye, notices a small splinter or a small speck of dust in your eye. That is, it's ridiculous. It's ignorance. It's humorous. For one, because of that big beam, how close could you get to a person? You'd be way away from that person. It would keep you from being in relationship with that person to really even know what is happening there. And yet, you're not focused on this big, massive head wound that you have because you are so focused on the small particle of dust that is in their eye. As many of you know, I, I like to work with wood and create things as an artist and woodsmith and um, the other day I was, I was cutting something at the house and uh, a particle of dust, wood, flew up and landed in my eye. Anybody ever had that happen, get something in your eye? Isn't that miserable? It's a miserable feeling. Like, Laura kept trying to talk to me, it was time for dinner, and I'm just walking around, like, freaking out to myself. I can't focus on anything else because there is something small inside of my eye. It is, it is drawn, all of my attention is get it out, right? I'm, 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 I'm asking for a, a demon exorcism here to my eyeball because I want this Beelzebub to be out. It is small, all right? And yet it's causing major irritation. And so finally I got um, 
this like water droplet thing. I filled it up full of water and I just opened up my eye laying on our bathroom floor and I'm just gushing water into my eye because it is in great pain. But it immediately, when I flushed that sucker out, it was like, eh, I'm good, let's eat. You know, I mean, right back to normal. See, when you're trying to remove something from your eye, don't you do it gently? You try to be very gently, gentle in working with your eye, don't you? If somebody else was to try to get something out of your eye, how would you want them to do it? Gently, right? I mean, you wouldn't want them to go from working in the garden to jabbing their dirty finger in your eyeball, would you? No. You'd want them to be gentle. Ava still freaks out when we try to put water drops in her eyes. I don't know where she gets that, probably from her dad, because when I was in elementary school, I flipped out as my parents had to take me to the emergency room because I got a grain of sand in my eye in the playground, and they could not get it out, and it was scratching the fire out of my eye, and all they wanted to do at the emergency room was to clear it out, and I lost my mind. My daughter acts just like that. We want people to be gentle with it, right? But if you were to randomly go out here and a tree was to fall into your eye, just random, you know? You were to trip and fall on a fence and ram a beam through your eyeball. How would you want that to take place? What would it require? Is there a difference between having maybe a particle of dust in your eye and a beam? One re require maybe flushing, a cleansing, and immediately that is over. I can see this morning. I got the dust out. But if there's a fence post jabbed through my cranium, poking out my eye, that requires surgery to take place. And so the guy with a massive head wound is coming up to you and is saying, man, you got a problem, right? You, like, you got a guy that's been like all bullet wound, shot to death, coming up to the guy who's got a, you know, a, a mosquito bite, and he's pointing out the wound left by a mosquito. This is what's taking place. It, it looks crazy. See, surgery, we call it evasive, don't we? There's a lot more to that. There's in-depth, and you have to have people around you who, who know how to remove that and how to do that surgery or to remove that cancer, to work on your heart. We've all heard the stories of the, the people, heart attack patients and heart transplants and doctors keeping those hearts alive by holding a, a real heart in their hands and pumping that sucker. Don't you want that dude to go to school to learn how to do that properly? Yes! See, there's something more here. And Jesus is kind of talking about this kind of humorous picture that the Pharisees are the ones with these big boulders or, or, or these big planks. Or our brothers and sisters will often have this massive issue within our lives, but we don't even notice it. We don't even recognize that it's there. See, Jesus is calling his followers, his believers, to have major self-awareness of their own wretchedness so that they can in turn humbly 
care for their brothers and sisters. See, brothers and sisters, the weightiness of preaching is is that every Sunday, myself or Pastor Justin stand up here and judge you. But the thing is, is we can stand up here and judge you and, and come with it with the mentality that we have no sin or we can humbly stand before you judging you and hopefully you hear very consistently in our preaching, not that we have this figured out, but that we're in the trench and the journey with you. There's a specific reason why. Most of these sermons, I mean, for the last two weeks, us talking about materialism and possessions and money like a few weeks ago has wrought me. I mean, it's just destroyed me in, in so, so many ways, emotionally, physically, relationally. It has been at work in me, and yet I still had to stand up there and say, we're materialistic. You're being materialistic. You're being greedy. It was only because of my own evaluation and the realization. I want you to know, your pastor, Justin, is wretched. And me too. We're wretched men. There are many planks that we are dealing with. And so our heartbeat mission is never to stand up here and be one of those preachers or pastors who comes across as being somebody who has this all together. But hopefully you see a consistency in our preaching of major confession from the pulpit. And it's because of this verse. I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says this, Specks in others we often see as beams, but the beams in our eyes we only see as specks. Brothers and sisters, can I maybe alleviate or awaken or maybe even anger some of you? Did you know that the root of every single sin that you read about or hear on the news is also in you and me? Every one of them. Every sin. It may be dormant, but at its core, everything that produces the most wretched of acts is in each one of us. Every one of them. It is in each one. So, so how can we be edifying ourselves to the point to where we are, are, are looking down upon and eternally judging these folks when every bit of their sin, though it may have come to the surface in that brother or sister's life, is also resting within each one of us. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? They think, because I have not killed anyone. And yet, what does Jesus say? If you hate your brother. Well, I've not, I've not actually had intimacy outside of my marriage, so I'm okay. And what does Jesus say? If you've lusted in your mind, you are the adulterer. See, the seed of sin, that nature outside of Jesus, all of that is resting inside of us. We are all one decision away from making those same decisions that you read about on the news or see online. Horrific things. 
See, people who are quick to call people to accountability but are unwilling to keep themselves or invite accountability. Did you know that's the major thing about church covenant membership is that you're inviting people to keep you accountable? You're saying, hey, this is my family. We, we take care of each other. We keep each other accountable. This is important to us. And so you're giving people, you're saying, hey, I, I want you to do that. I want you to, to watch me, to care for me, to, to humbly, as we do this together, as we perform spiritual surgery through the, the hands and feet of God, through his wisdom of his word, as we care for one another for those huge planks, those huge issues that were, are with inside of us, as we care and do that for one another. So Jesus is saying there is a wrong way of judging people, but there is also a right judgment. There is a right judgment. Jesus is not forbidding all moral judgments, but he's forbidding judgment without grace, without love, without compassion for the person being addressed while all the while realizing that we have issues as well. Do you understand that? There is a judgment that we all make. Somebody pull out in front of you. You call them an idiot. You don't know them, do you? We were going to dinner with the, the, some people in our congregation last night, and we were pulling out of Kroger, and it was like green, like a few seconds green on our side, and all of the traffic takes off, and a gentleman on Scottsville Road pulls out in front of all of us and we're all slam on our brakes and the guy in the vehicle gave us all the dirty look right so immediately I do not know him right but immediately I'm thinking judgment things about him I'm thinking in terms about this gentleman that I do not know I did not make those terms in love and compassion and grace for the person being addressed as just simply we're thinking statements. In John chapter 7 verse 24, Jesus says this, "Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment." John 7:24, "Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment." See, many of the Pharisees judged by appearance. Or assumptions. Have you ever done that? Have you ever assumed that a person of a different color was a certain way simply because they were that color? Have you ever got on an airplane and seen somebody from the Middle East and they're wearing a turban? You can quickly tell that they are from the Middle East. And immediately, in your mind, you begin to think things like, they're a terrorist. We judge by appearance. You see a guy who looks like he fell into a tackle box. That means like his head's all covered in jewelry. Nose, ear, covered in tattoos. Our immediate thing can be, man, this guy is bad news. This gal is bad news. See, we, we have a tendency to judge by appearance instead of judging using right 
judgment. And this is the way that the Pharisees act, and this is the way that many of us can also act. How many of us have ever made a judgment or assumption about a person or situation, maybe even played it out in our minds, what we believed that person's motive was for what they were doing? Have you ever done that? Have you ever played that out in your mind? It causes paranoia within you. It causes you to be overcritical of people. Well, I just saw this person do this, or I think that they're going to do this, and this is why I think that they're going to do this. And you, you, know, you play out the layers, layer after layer. It's because of this, it's because of this, it's because of this, it's because of this. Now, you don't even really know. And how many times have you ever made a judgment call like that and been wrong? I have a close friend, a really, really, really close friend who was working in retail and walked up to a lady and asked her one time, so when's your baby due? For the woman to reply, I'm not pregnant. Stephen Covey, if you've walked around this school, you'll see something called the Seven Habits. And uh, he wrote a book that has become popular in our school systems, but he does tell this great story. He says, on a Sunday morning, I went to, to ride the subway on, in New York City, and he, he said, I like that, I don't know, it's just relaxing for me. He said, I drive around the city, it was quiet on the subway. He's like, I just enjoyed that time. And he said, one particular Sunday, I got onto the subway and I was sitting there enjoying, relaxing this, this kind of ride and enjoying thinking, you know, kind of meditating on some different things. And he said, about that time at one of the stops, the doors opened up and four kids come running onto the subway. And then their dad gets on. And the dad sits next to Stephen Covey, and he said, those four kids started acting nuts. They were running up and down the subway. They were, like, flipping over papers, talking really, really loud, laughing, being, you know, just really cantankerous kids. All the while, while the dad sat right next to him, just staring at the floor. Inside, Stephen Covey says, he said, I began to have judgment thoughts. I began to think, man, this guy needs to get control of his kids. He needs to get a handle on these kids. He said, so that's what I began to feel, and that's what began to play out inside of my mind. The kids kept being crazy, running all over the place. He said, finally, I could no longer contain myself anymore. I looked at the sir, and I said, sir, excuse me. I was like, but don't you think that you should get control of these kids? He said, about that time that the the dad looked up practically for the first time and looked at his kids and he said, you know, sir, you're probably right. He said, but we just left the hospital and their mama died. And they don't know how to respond. And sir, I don't either. So he made a judgment call. He made an assumption behind an action but he didn't know everything. He didn't know everything that had happened. Now, should those kids have been acting like that? No. But there can be charity. There can be grace. There can be compassion. In dealing with the guys at Program Living, you see them act like small children a lot of the time. But once you really know those men's lives, we give to them, and the guys at Hope House administer much grace Grace, I would never show my child in that amount. Do we show those men 
Because once you know those men at Hope House and through the program living ministry, you begin to understand their stories. You begin to have compassion and grace. You understand that for most of these men, they grew up in terrible, terrible, terrible home situations. They had made terrible, terrible decisions. No one had ever taught them any differently. So what do we do? We're, we're lavish in grace toward those men. Lavish, compassion, love, care. See, this is the type of judgment that Jesus was speaking against. Jesus was commanding us to not make judgments or assumptions about people and their motives without really knowing the truth. Not knowing the truth. We must be careful not to judge people based on one act, one appearance. Or where they live. Could you imagine if, if we judged your eternal significance based on one act of you this week? Would anybody be embarrassed? Yes. Even if we didn't even see it, if we could read into your mind and see one thought that was ungodly this week and based all of your eternity on it. Jesus is warning against being hypercritical. Always looking at the faults of others. Hypercritical as, as, as when we do this and we begin to look at all the faults in all these other people and what they're not doing, what they're not contributing. Because specifically, this passage is dealing with the church. And sin, Satan, and death would like nothing more for that to begin to take place that within the church that we would begin to begin to look at all the faults of everyone else while always ignoring the plank that is coming out of our eyes that we don't live in self-awareness. But Jesus is calling us to be, have a heightened sense of self-awareness so that even when we're dealing with the issues in a brother and sister that we can so, do so gently with compassion, that we can share truth with with love, not just truth. Because if we share just truth, man, that's painful. But if you know someone and you really care for somebody, then you can, through love and compassion, really begin to work. But also, you must be willing to say, brothers and sisters, help me as well. See, Jesus is the one that really knows their motives. And when we step into a place of judging people for the sake of judgment, then we place ourselves upon a throne that is only meant for God. But let me be very clear this morning. Jesus is talking about specifically a judicial judgment. He is talking about a declaration of guilty or innocent, but also the punishment and reward. So this, this term here is, it's meaning to condemn them. It's meaning to send these people to hell or to their eternal resting place, that, that we can make those decisions through our being hypercritical and judgmental and just being just really 
cynical of other people and always looking at the faults of other individuals without really doing the hard work in our own lives. So Jesus is saying in this passage, don't judge people to hell. But also, we need to be very careful with this. It's not our responsibility to put people in heaven either. We share the gospel. We want them to be saved. But we've got to be very careful looking at another individual and saying this or that. Unless there is major clarity in Scripture. When we look at this term, and we look at the idea that Jesus is getting at here, he is not saying that there is never a place to judge. There is right judgment. There is righteous judgment. A lot of times this is the way that we'll use this. We are, as people, are to have discernment. We are to have sound judgment. When this verse is is used poorly, it is believed that Jesus is against all judgment. And yet, clearly, Jesus is not against all judgment. There's a book in the Old Testament called Judges. There are people who have read this passage who believe that there should not even be courts, juries, or judges based on Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, because they believe that Jesus said, do not judge, and so that there should be no person determining what is right and wrong on this planet. And yet, that is not what Jesus is saying. Later on in this very passage, does our own Lord not even call certain groups of people dogs and pigs? That sounds like a judgment call to me. Later on, he's going to say something. Um, he, he's going to say this. We'll cover it in a few weeks. But he says in, in verse 15, beware of false prophets. Jesus does make and commands us as brothers and sisters to take care of each other and to make moral sound judgments. But those moral sound judgments must be based on God's word and not a system of religiosity and expectations that we have created for people. We must come to these truths in the realization of what God's word says. See, brothers and sisters, God wants us to call sin, sin. And one of my major concerns for this verse is is not in how it's being used poorly, but also from Christians who aren't using it at all. And I think if we look at the whole counsel of Scripture, it's that Jesus wants us to judge. But again to judge rightly, to judge soundly. I've been majorly confused by people who claim to be followers of Jesus who are supporting lifestyles of sin. That's not the Bible. It's not the Scripture. And yet we want to be tolerant. We want to be passive on these issues. We don't want to cast judgment and yet Jesus is going to illustrate over and over through the gospel of Matthew judgment moral judgment he's also going to do a judicial judgment 
But it's important for us as believers to understand and to call sin, sin in our lives, but also in the lives of others, but to do so with, again, love and compassion. I think that this is the bigger issue within the American church. It's people who are claiming to be Christians who are no longer morally judging the world through the standards of scriptures, but more about how they feel about a particular issue or topic. Is the scripture the filter of your life? Is it the paradigm that controls the way that you see the world? Just think about this, even within the church. If we were all self-feeding, if we all looked at every, every issue, everything within the church, every part of mission, every way that we live our families, if we were to do that through the lens, through the view, under the authority of Scripture, there would be way more agreement within our churches than there would be disagreement. But what happens a lot of times is you have two brothers and sisters in Christ or brother and brother and sister and sister and you start having these conversations but you're not starting from the same foundation. So conflict arises. And yet Jesus is telling us make sound judgment. Not eternal judgment. But right is right and wrong is wrong and I don't care what lies that you've been deceived by in our culture. As a believer, if you don't love Jesus through his word, if we're not living under this authority, then major conflict is, is taking place even within the church. And this is the context that Jesus is speaking about. He's speaking against the way that Pharisees are doing it. They're judging these people, and yet there's major moral failure within the hearts of these men. He's saying, man, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But man, if you see a brother or sister committing spiritual suicide and going down a pathway that is wrong it is more unloving for us not to judge them than it is to judge them and say hey man not by my standards but but God's will here brother you're walking down a path that is ungodly and unhealthy sister you're walking down a path that is ungodly and unhealthy we cannot base our lives on how we feel we must base our lives in removing of those planks from our own hearts based on God's Word, based on Him. Is what we believe in practice more consistent with the world or with Scripture? So how do we respond to this? Even Jesus in this statement, right? He says, deal with your own sin. And when you've really dealt with that and are walking in repentance and you have become aware of this huge plank, what's he say? Then you will see clearly to help a brother, to help a sister. Jesus throughout the Sermon on the Mount talks a lot about seeing, doesn't he? Because seeing is connected to our hearts. So again, Jesus implores, he encourages you. Man, let's, let's serve one another. But do not come at it as holier than thou or that you have it all together. But I think that the best form of discipleship, one-on-one -on -one discipleship, is a man and a man or a woman and a woman who are equally confessing both God's grace in successes in their lives and obedience, but also 
major sin issues. Working together. So how do we respond to a person after we have judged them, reveals if we have judged them wrongly or rightly? You get that? So how, how you respond to a person after you have judged them reflects if you have judged them rightly or if you have judged them wrongly. Let me give you some handles here. Number one, don't quote this verse. Just don't quote it. Because typically, every time we quote it, we've used it poorly. <laughs> we've quoted it wrongly. All right? So don't quote this passage unless you really are thinking about the way in which you are using it. Because again, probably 99% of the time that it's being used, it's not being used in a biblical context. It's just being used to excuse or to justify sin. Number two, be generous in charity and truth. Be generous in charity and in truth. See, when you point out that speck or log, a lot of times we like to do it and then drop the mic. We like to share truth. We like to point out truth, but we are unwilling to be charitable in walking alongside that brother and sister in accountability and care and love. If you want to know if you're responding and judging rightly and wrongly, see, a lot of times we like to just cast judgment on people whom we do not know or maybe that we even do know, and we're judging their motives, we're judging their hearts, we're judging based on their appearance, all of these sorts of things, and, and those are things that we really don't know, but we like to broadcast, paint those pictures, and then move on from those relationships. Right judgment, righteous judgment, helps to bring those things to attention to the person, but also prayerfully and walks alongside of them in healing. So we must be generous in charity and truth. Number three, live a confessional life. Live a confessional life. Some of you have heard me say this before, but I want to live such a confessional life, especially with my wife, that if you see me doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing, and you think you're going to get me by going and telling my wife, that when you tell my wife, she's like, yeah, he told me. I want to live such a confessional life as one of your pastors, that if somebody in this community sees me responding in some way that is ungodly, that not that you justify and say that it's right, but that you can be like, man, our, our pastor, our pastors, they live very confessional lives. And if you come to our MC at the Flanders, I want you to know a lot of it, it's, it's intervention for me. As I just vomit truth and what I really think and what's really going on inside of my heart because I... I want to lead by example vulnerability in this community of faith. I encourage you, and I need to do so even more, 
to live a very confessional life. Very confessional. Even if it causes discomfort. Gentlemen, if you're struggling with a lustful situation, tell your wife. Ladies, if you're struggling with a lustful situation, tell your husband. If, if you're consuming too much, or, or if whatever is taking place within your lives, that there is someone in your life Typically, I encourage people to the, their spouse, but then also another person of the same sex. And so you have this trinity of accountability where you are laying it all out on the line to these people. Fourth and last is to respond like Jesus. You want to know if you have judged correctly and rightly? Jesus, for three years of his ministry, from everyone to the religious sect, to pagans and prostitutes, tax collectors and sinners. Morally states to them, what you're doing isn't right, isn't godly. It is not God-honoring. And yet, then what does Jesus do? He goes and dies for those whom He has judged. He lives sacrificially for the very people that He has called prostitutes and drunkards and sinners and liars. Aren't you glad some of those Pharisees were saved? They were. One of them's name was Paul. So the very people that Jesus is calling out are the very people that Jesus eventually dies for. And the eternal judgment, which can only be left for God, and which Jesus does, He declares guilty, and yet for His children, pays the price. He pays it all. He pays the debt. May we live lives that do are marked not by wrong judgment and quick judgments and assumptions and being overly critical of everyone, but lives that are marked by righteous judgment in caring for people. See, there's a difference, and we know that difference. You know when you've just blasted somebody. And you know when you really are speaking true to them in care. Don't we? We know the difference. And Jesus is saying, know the difference and live rightly. Let's pray.